Hello and welcome to our Meet the Writers Best Of show. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today we're showcasing four international writers we've had the pleasure of speaking to in 2022, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, taking in the Netherlands and Ukraine too. Let's begin with Dr. Wahid Aryan, who was born in Afghanistan in the early 1980s. His family fled to avoid the conflict and found themselves in a Pakistani refugee camp. At the age of 15, he travelled to the UK alone, arriving illegally with $100 to his name. He worked and studied, eventually gaining a place at Cambridge University. He now works as a doctor and runs a medical charity in Afghanistan and Syria. He's won a plethora of awards for his work, and his new book, In the Wars, recounts his extraordinary life story. The first kind person was a family friend um, from Afghanistan who let me stay with him in his flat. And they tried to help me as well when I told them I want to become a doctor. How do I do that? And he sat with other fellow Afghan refugees, and they decided that uh, the best thing for me to do would be to work in a chicken shop, then work as a cabbie and then own a chicken shop because they told me frankly that I didn't have an education. Uh, I came from Afghanistan, I needed to support the family and I shouldn't waste my time. So their heart was in the right place. And I know these are admirable jobs, but their vision for me was to become a chicken wing specialist, whereas I wanted to become a medical specialist. Mm -hmm. So I went about trying to figure out how to do that. And I uh, started working first. And I found incredibly kind people, my first boss, who, despite me not having even an insurance number, uh, national insurance number, he gave me the job because he knew that so much relied on that. And then I found very kind people um, in college who tried to support me. And because I had to go from one college to another, work in three different jobs during the day and study in three different colleges at nighttime. So, yes, there were people, very kind people along the way who helped me. And of course all of this paid off. You landed up at Cambridge. I did. Um, initially I was advised against it. So one of the tutors who was preparing me uh, told me, again very frankly, that you are not white, you haven't been to a private school and we don't even know if you've been to school or not. And frankly I hadn't. So he was honest with me and he said don't burn your place. When I left that uh, interview preparation room uh, in King's Cross, where my college was, I was absolutely fuming. Uh, I was very upset, stomping up and down. But then I told myself that if the Russian bombs didn't scare me, Cambridge is not going to scare me. So I went, took a donut kebab along the way with me, went home and circled Cambridge at the top. Uh, and that's become my motto now. If somebody says that I couldn't do something or a problem couldn't be solved, I don't look at ways that it can't be solved. I simply look at ways it can be mm. and try it. Now, you did very well at Cambridge. You went on to study at Imperial. You spent a semester at Harvard. And, of course, just racking up all these different qualifications along the way. You were studying much more than you needed to, getting different courses. But at this point, you also became aware of the fact that you had PTSD. And, in fact, this followed a bit of a pattern because, as a child, you'd also been depressed. And this issue of mental health, I think, is incredibly important when it comes to refugees because many, many people suffer from PTSD or indeed depression simply because it's circumstantial. 
Uh, thanks very much for bringing that up. Uh, I'm a mental health advocate, and now I've got an initiative called uh, Aryan Wellbeing, uh, which uh, the, the aim of that is to connect people online to highly qualified, regulated, and diverse mental health experts, such as psychologists, therapists, and PTs, to improve people's mental health. And the inspiration for that comes from my own PTSD. Uh, and when I started even Cambridge University or working in London, I had signs of PTSD. And those symptoms or signs were me when a bus, red bus would keep coming at me, I would see a tank. Uh, so that's a flashback. And then I would have nightmares in the middle of the night. I would wake up because a sniper would be taking my head off in my dream. I had to open the window to see that I was in London. I was safe. And the third sign I had was hypervigilance. My fist would always be tightened. I was, I would be sweating. I didn't know that it existed, uh, and I had self-diagnosed later on. But I carried on with those signs and symptoms during my studies at Cambridge and later on back in London and so on. So the healing happened for me. That was later on when I became a doctor and I started working as a doctor and I was starting healing people. I could see the fruit of my hard work and I kept going back and forth to Afghanistan to help others as well through my philanthropic work. So that was one element of my healing. But the second one was that I sought professional help to psychologists and, and they told me that I had deep scars of, of traumas of, of conflict. So that was another one. And the third one was exercise. So which is why I've combined all those three, exercise, therapy, as well as uh, the purpose and giving to uh, the building blocks of uh, Aryan well-being for me. But that takes me to another important point that, yes, refugees, almost all of them, they suffer from PTSD, severe anxiety and depression. And people post-COVID coming out from COVID as well, I think we shouldn't forget the non-refugee people who, as a, as an A&E physician, I've seen the crisis happening as well, that families have been ripped apart. I've seen so many people suffer directly from COVID and indirectly from the psychosocial measures, the traumas. And sadly, there are not many solutions available. There's a very long waiting list in the NHS. And privately, there are semi-qualified or unqualified and regulated people, or sometimes regulated but very expensive. They're supporting it. So all that has become an inspiration to, for me to tackle mental health through the area and well-being. Now, that, of course, is not your only uh, philanthropic uh, activity. You started Aryan Telemedicine. Uh, now, telemedicine, as I understand it, or as you explain it in the book, can be synchronous or asynchronous. Tell us what it is and how it works and how your organisation mm. helps people globally. So telemedicine, simply, it is connecting a medic from one place to a patient or a medic somewhere else online. It's as simple as that. Uh, so it could be done uh, synchronously, which is a direct life, or it could be asynchronous, there's a delay in between. So these are technical terms. But the reason why I came up with doing telemedicine in Afghanistan was in 2010 when I became a doctor, I kept going back and forth to help in any way I could because I was inspired to help other people who were in refugee camps as well. And I soon realized that on my own, I couldn't achieve much, because the suffering was still there. Despite the help in Afghanistan that I was pouring into, the system was absolutely on its knees. 
And every time I would come back to the NHS, I would tell my colleagues, they wanted to help too. Because of security and logistical problems, I couldn't take them with me. So the light bulb moment happened in 2015 when I noticed that my nephews, nieces and the hospital doctors were using smartphones and secure social media to chat with each other. And I thought, could we use, tap into this? Uh, and that was the beginning of Ariane Telehill, uh, telemedicine charity that now connects volunteer doctors from the NHS and across the world to medics in Afghanistan and giving specialist support. We've scaled to Syria, to African countries, and we have international partnerships with other international organizations and let them know how we operate so they can learn our lessons. But the big part of that, of course, is helping people on the ground. And the side effect of that has been my own healing, which is an ongoing journey for PTSD, as I found peace with it, that every day there is something that I can do for people or that I see that our specialists are helping. I get rewarded. And that helps me. Writing the book in the wars itself has been a healing journey for me, opening up for I always been closed for such a long time uh, that even my wife found out after seven months or eight months together um, that we, we, we started seeing each other. She found out that I had seven sisters. I couldn't even tell her that I have seven sisters. That was Dr. Wahid Aryan, originally from Afghanistan. Well, let's now cross to the Netherlands by way of Genoa, Italy, which is where I caught up with the Dutch writer Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, author of Grand Hotel Europa, a bestseller that's finally been translated into English. It's a moving and addictive masterpiece of European identity, nostalgia and the end of an era, and it asks us to really interrogate the idea of what being European really means. The basis of uh, Grand Hotel Europa was a personal question I had been uh, asking myself for quite some time, and a question that has everything to do with my translocation from the Netherlands to Italy. Because this translocation had a couple of consequences. Um, in the first place, gradually, I began to feel a bit less Dutch, which is only very healthy for a person. I started to feel a bit more Italian, which is also a very happy consequence. But most importantly, I noticed that I felt more European. And uh, for quite some time I was asking myself, what does that mean? What does it mean to feel European? What could a European identity be? And it's actually this... Uh, personal question that is at the root of Grand Hotel Europa. And when you start thinking about that question, you don't even have to think for that long to arrive at the conclusion that it, European identity has a lot to do with the past and our relationship with the past. In Europe, we live really in the midst of the tangible past. No? The monuments uh, surround us, the museums. Uh, we're having a view on the Cathedral of Genoa from, from where we're talking from. And all this past that surrounds us uh, is in the first place, our, um, those are our riches. No? We are very proud of it. We feel good about it. But there is perhaps another side to it, because when you spend your entire life surrounded by 
beautiful remnants of glorious centuries from the past, sooner or later it may be tempting to conclude that we have had better times in the past, that the best times are behind us. And this idea of nostalgia, paradoxically, is also a constant factor in European identity. It's something we always thought. We always thought that the past was better. Even the ancient Greeks thought that. They still had to construct our entire civilization, but they thought that the golden age was in the past when the gods were still roaming the earth. So I realized that uh, a book about Europe, a novel about European identity, should be a novel about the past, our relationship to the past, and nostalgia. So what does it mean to be European? I think that it, uh, it means many things, but among those preeminently, the awareness of the past, the awareness of our history. We know what war means in other continents that's not so clear, perhaps. We know, we know many things. This, unfortunately, doesn't mean that we are very, that we are wiser, but at least we are more conscious. What does it mean for the future then? I mean, one of the ideas that you put forward is that, that perhaps Europe is, is now no better than a, a, a giant theme park, just a place for, for tourists to come to experience that past. But is there, a, is there a future and what needs to happen? Well, actually, when you think about this nostalgia, you know, this idea that uh, the past was better, there are, are perhaps also some objective arguments to arrive at the same conclusion in the case of Europe. No? For instance, uh, geopolitically speaking, it's obvious that we have seen better times. The times that the nations of Europe ruled the world are definitely behind us, and it's all for the better, don't get me wrong. But I think this means that Europe arrived at a point in history where it has to redefine itself as a geopolitical power. Uh, it has to redefine itself in between rising and declining superpowers. And that is exactly what we're trying to do with this painstakingly difficult but incredibly beautiful project of European unification, of which Britain, unfortunately, is no longer a part. But I think also, economically speaking, we can find some arguments that we've seen better times in the past. And this is perhaps more visible in the south here, around the Mediterranean, than in the spoiled north of Europe. But I, I see it here in Italy that a country like Italy has increasing difficulties maintaining a proper old-fashioned economy, uh, meaning like an economy based on heavy industry, shipbuilding, that kind of thing doesn't make sense anymore. You cannot uh, keep up with the competition from, uh, from the emerging economies in the East. So also, economically speaking, Europe arrived at a point in history where it has to redefine itself. And what you see then, uh, again, it's something that is much more visible in the South than in the North, is that as an alternative economy, as a new means of making money, go back to this one main characteristic of European identity, which is the omnipresence of the tangible past. And that is something you can sell. 
you can sell tickets for your museums, for your monuments. And this brings tourism. So for that reason, uh, I realized that it was inevitable to speak also about tourism in my novel about uh, European identity. And uh, the, the things you see in, uh, in Italy, uh, especially in cities like Venice or Florence, but also Rome, is that uh, the center of the city is rapidly turning into an open-air museum, a theme park. And the question I ask myself in the book is uh, if this is the destiny for the entire continent, if we are bound to be the garden of the world. Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer there. And now to Ukraine, where we speak to one of the most successful literary exports from that country, Andrei Kirchhoff. Prior to his illustrious writing career, he served as a prison warden during his military service and following that, a journalist, before trying his hand at fiction. He boasts a wealth of novels and screenplays to his name, including the best-selling Death and the Penguin. His latest book is Grey Bees, which details the turmoils in Ukraine through the eyes of a mild-mannered beekeeper. I have been writing in the last years a series of novels about 1919, and I see lots of similarities between the events then, from 1918 till 1921 in Kyiv in Ukraine, with the events today. The same level of atrocity, the same level of hate for everything Ukrainian, which was actually shown in 1918, 1919, by the Red Army, by the Bolsheviks, who were trying to make Ukraine Soviet Republic, and they succeeded from the fourth attempt in 1921. And now we have actually the repetition of the same situation. And in 41, that's when your family actually had to flee. Well, my family had to flee not from Ukraine. Actually, uh, they were fleeing from a village Budagash in Leningrad region in the northern Russia. And my grandma was uh, crossing the huge river Volkhov in a wooden boat together with her three children, uh, two brothers of my mother and my mother. And of course, I mean, at that time, they were like 10, uh, 11, 12 years old. So in a way, that war has always been very present in your mind. Well, the Second World War was always present, uh, not because actually history of my family, but because it was present in uh, Soviet culture. I mean, it was a cult war for uh, Soviet ideology. The 9th of May, the so-called Victory Day, uh, was much more important even than the October Revolution anniversary. And later, already in post-Soviet time, it became the day when uh, Ukrainians were menaced the most by Russia. So because, I mean, and I don't connect actually this day with actual events of the Second World War, because for me, actually, the the history, the real events are much more important than how the memory was instrumentalized and used for ideological purposes. Mm. And I mean, talking about 1919, 1920, of course, what we saw then was all the writers, the intellectuals being wiped out. And that's a great fear that the second execution of, of the literati, if you like, will happen again. It will happen if Russians come, because obviously, I mean, Putin doesn't hide that this war is also 
against Ukrainian identity, against uh, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language, and against Ukraine altogether, because he dreams of wiping the name of Ukraine from the world map. Uh, so, I mean, who is keeping the map of Ukraine on the world map? Of course, intellectuals, historians, professors, sometimes politicians, but writers most of all, because writers are creating the history of uh, culture, the history of identity, the history of people, and the history of the country. And actually, these books are much more important than the school books. And that's why actually now the censors, Russian censors sent to occupied territories are going on through the books in the local libraries, which were not shelled or destroyed or burned down. And they are removing books by contemporary Ukrainian authors. I don't know in which way they are destroyed, but uh, I mean, they are taken away. And of course, the books which were printed in the Soviet times, they remain because that's what Russia wants. Mm. Russia wants to bring Ukraine back down in the past. You've been writing about this conflict since before it began. You've been writing about it since the Donbass was invaded, in fact, with grey bees. And now, of course, you've been documenting everything that's happened with this current invasion. And yet you are still based within Ukraine. Are you not frightened? Uh, it would be probably dishonest to say that I, I, I'm frightened. I'm frightened for the actually destiny of Ukraine, for the future, for for the country. But uh, well, I, I'm not more frightened than any, anybody else. I mean, I, I'm following what is happening. I, uh, I mean, in a way, one can say that actually Ukraine is fighting back because Ukraine is frightened of losing itself. I mean, Ukrainians, if they lose Ukraine, they stop being Ukrainians. They stop being free. They will lose uh, not only freedom to express their opinion, etc. They will lose their basis, their soil on which they stand. And uh, Ukrainian soil, actually, it's the history of independence, history of democracy, history of anarchy also. Mm. And that's why, I mean, Ukrainians, if, I, if they cannot go out and protest, like in Russia, they cannot go out and protest. I mean, they, they, they will be practically destroyed by this only fact. If they are forced to shut up, they cannot shut up. If they have to emigrate, I mean, probably choosing between remaining on their land in Ukraine, but being sort of muzzled, uh, being unable to talk, and uh, emigrating and being able to talk, probably they will have to choose emigration because freedom is uh, something which is much more important for Ukrainians than stability, than money. And for Russians, unfortunately, stability and money are much more important than freedom. Mm. So, I mean, they gave up everything in the last 20 years. They allowed uh, Putin to destroy a position physically and morally. They agreed that actually you can be imprisoned for sharing a post on Facebook. So, I mean, in this situation, I mean, I don't have much hope about future of Russia, but I still have a lot of hope for the future of Ukraine. Andrei Kirkov from Ukraine there. And finally, to my own former home, Zimbabwe, to meet no Violet Bulawayo. Her first novel, We Need New Names, was shortlisted for the 2013 Booker Prize. She was the first Zimbabwean and first black African woman to make the shortlist. 
Having grown up surrounded by the powerful storytelling of her father and grandmother, she studied English and creative writing in the US. But it was when she returned to Zimbabwe after the 2017 coup that removed President Robert Mugabe that her long-awaited second novel began to take shape. Set in an animal kingdom called Jidada, Glory tells the story of dashed hope, corruption and greed following the fall of a dictator. It's satirical, sharp and funny, and it's been met with critical acclaim. I went back to Zimbabwe because of the November 14 coup that ousted the only president I had known. Until that time, for me, it was a story that definitely grabbed my attention because it swamps up something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I went to a Zimbabwe of euphoria. I think people were really on a high. It's not to say that they did not realize the how complicated the moment was because Mugabe was obviously going to be replaced by his deputy. But I think having tried every possible way to be rid of him and having failed quite resoundingly, most had come to a point where they were willing to see him go at all costs. And of course, there were promises by the new leader to deliver a lot of what people had been crying for really over much of Mugabe's rule. So it was a, a period of hope, a period of, of optimism. But unfortunately, within a few months, it, it became quite apparent that the change that we had celebrated was no change at all. And it was around that time that I decided to switch what had begun as an unfiction project into a work of fiction. The story just demanded a different way of, of telling it, and hence glory as it reads right now. Now, the person that took over is, in fact, the man who carried out Mugabe's orders and helped train those North Korean forces uh, during the Gurukhundi, during the massacre in the 1980s, Emerson Monangagwa. So I have always found it extraordinary that Zimbabweans thought it might turn out differently, that we could possibly have believed, and we did, you're right, we wanted it so badly that we could have believed that this might have ended any other way. Absolutely. I mean, it was quite naive, especially when you look back at it. But then the question is, what what was the other option? What was the other choice, really, given that you are dealing with a system that has made it and that continues to make it clear that there is no space for anyone else? You know, I feel like in such situations, it's quite normal for people to to kind of hope against hope. At the very least, people felt like maybe, you know, we could turn some kind of corner. It wasn't the best case scenario, but maybe we could, our aspirations and wishes for a better Zimbabwe could somehow lead us somewhere. We could connect at some strange corner and go somewhere. Now, the way you've written about this is just masterful. Uh, Zimbabweans are very active on social media. 
making frequent use of George Orwell's Animal Farm to discuss the political situation. It was something that started off in one of the independent newspapers years ago, and Zimbabweans have really adopted that. I think most Zimbabweans have now read Animal Farm. And you've kind of taken that and you've you've got the wonderful, uh, the sort of imagery, the citizens of, of your made-up place, Jidada, and the old horse and his wife, Marvellous the Donkey, which of course are standing in for, for Mugabe and his wife, Grace. And it's just all of the different animals that have all these different roles. But I think it's really important to point out this is not just a rewrite of Animal Farm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I like most writers, I draw inspiration from from those who came before me or those that I'm writing with. And I'm really grateful that Animal Farm actually came at a time when I was desperately looking for a fresh way of telling what was becoming a very tired, a very public story. But I'd say that before Animal Farm, they were my grandmother's animal stories, you know, so that even when I read Animal Farm, I actually had my grandmother in that in that voice, in that in that book. You know, the challenge for me as a creative, as an artist, was to use those influences, those two main influences, to come up with my own thing that I hope, while giving a nod to the original sources, also stands on its own as its own invention, as its own creation. No Violet Blower from Zimbabwe, bringing this special best of Meet the Writers, showcasing international authors to an end. Thanks to our producer and editor, Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.